Cut, and this is the K Cut movie podcast for movie fans. James here, I'm a content creator. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I also produce and release music under the A-list boutique Paul. I've also contributed some articles to Films Fatale, and my main interests lie in no budget cinema and 70 cinema. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale. I love silent film, lost films, international cinema, and classics. My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love international cinema, art house cinema, and a little bit of everything in between. And it's that time again, folks. It is the Cinematic Smorgasbord, where early in the month, what we do every single month is we give each other films to watch. So as we just proclaimed in our intros, we all like a little bit of something, you know, in terms of genres, in terms of styles, in terms of eras. And while there is a little bit of crossover in terms of our tastes, we still haven't seen everything that our other co-hosts have seen. So what we do is we recommend a film to one another that we have never seen before, and we report our findings. Furthermore, we savor the second part of the episode for the collective pick, a film that none of us have ever seen before. And that pick for this month was The Juniper Tree, uh indie film which has gained a lot of momentum again decades after its release because of the one and only Bjork starring in it. And we'll see what we thought about that little humble fantasy medieval film of sorts in the second part. But first and foremost, we're going to get into our individual, individually assigned films. So Rachel recommended something to me, I recommended something to James, and James something to Rachel. And we're going to find out how everybody did in terms of selecting a film, in terms of how the film was, and did we like them. So who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay, what were you recommended and how was it? James recommended to me The King is Alive, which has... It's one of my favorite things, which is where it centers around a completely wild production of Shakespeare. So it's a group of tourists, and I believe they're in Namibia, and um, their van goes off course, and then they break down, so they're stuck in the middle of nowhere, far from where they're supposed to be, and they're all kind of terrible people. And um, there is an actor on board, and as they sort of sit out there starving and being alone, he says, hey, why don't we put on a production of King Lear? And so he assigns them all parts, and there's drama, and weird hookups, and... You get the feeling as you're watching that it's basically just a futile way of staving off the inevit- inevitable. They're um, they're doomed out there, they're stuck, and uh, whatever they're doing doesn't really matter. That's what I took away from it anyway. And it was made using the Dogma 95 rules, which for those who are not familiar with it, it was a sort of way to purify film that had very strict rules technically and... Um, Things like um, the sound couldn't be produced apart from the images, uh, the action had to be very limited, that sort of thing. And so it's all very self-contained, and I think it lends itself well to that sort of oppressive feeling that you get. Yeah, it's definitely one of the more interesting Dogma films. I haven't seen all of the Dogma films that have been released, but uh, I've seen a number of them. And this was actually the fourth one, and uh, actually um, Christian Levering is actually one of the four original directors who... like started the movement which included um thomas winterberg lars von trier and then i can't remember who the other guy was but uh this is also even though it was uh it was the fourth dogma film to be certified but it was i think the fifth to be released because 
Harmony Crin's Julian Donkey Boy, I think, came out before that in 99, and this one, I think, came out in 2000. So it was, it was um, those two were the first, actually, English-language ones, also. But yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting story, because when I saw the premise, I was like, that's interesting. But uh, the thing they kind of highlight in the synopsis is where it's like, the they're not only putting on this, play, playing the show, but it's almost kind of like seeping into their real-life situation. Mm-hmm. which kind of helps it, it kind of you know it helps drive the plot but also it's a, it's like you know it's starting to have effects on them mentally throughout as like you know especially it's like you know they're out in this you know they're out in the desert and they're just having to deal with each other and like you said yeah they're all terrible people really yeah and and they sort of reconfigure themselves over the course of the film in strange ways yeah and uh yeah it's just it's just a really interesting movie to watch unfold uh i i found that you know i've always found the dogma 95 movie very interesting because like you said the rules because it's like you know it was always strange it was too, like the director couldn't be credited uh you could only use natural light uh it had to take place in the here and now like you couldn't do period pieces you couldn't have superficial action like you know you can't have like you know i don't know gun gun fights and all that uh and you cannot credit the director yeah and then uh, also uh, uh, one one specific thing that I was found interesting was uh, you couldn't do genre. Yeah. Like you weren't allowed to do anything genre specifically. You couldn't do horror or sci-fi. So it's like, you know, all, all of them kind of play out as like almost like stage play type things, but they're just like rooted in more so reality. But yeah, I, I also... Um, couldn't you say all film belongs to genre in a way too? Like I think it's kind of a dumb idea. Yeah, because I mean they're all essentially dramas, which is kind of a genre in, in and of itself. But uh, I also like this one because uh, it was um, it was one of the films that actually had kind of like a bigger person in it uh, because um, Jennifer Jason Lee is in it. Yes, and uh, when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." Um, and there's all sorts of people like that kind of like are in and out of this series. Like uh, I think Julian Donkey Boy, uh, Werner Herzog's stars in that one. Which is just such a weird cameo to think about because it's like, how does someone just get like such a legendary director just to play just a random role in a movie? But uh, yeah, I I primarily picked this one because I was like, oh, okay, this seems more like Rachel Speed. It's a it's a take on Shakespeare and it has to do with um you know people who are traveling. Yeah, that that those are both big things with me. Um, for fans of the book and possibly the miniseries uh, Station Eleven. Um, that's very similar because it's a post-apocalyptic scenario, kind of like a desert can give the vibes of, and it also centers around a production of King Lear. So if you enjoyed Station Eleven, this might hit some buttons for you. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. I didn't get around to watching it, unfortunately, but it does sound really interesting. So what did you get? So, uh, I actually got selected a film by you. Uh, you're trying to convert me into being a, a, a Bab Streisand fan. So, uh, what I was given was the romantic drama, which takes place over the course of numerous years, The Way We Were by Sidney Pollack, which stars, yep, once again, uh, the one and only Barbara Streisand, but also Robert Redford, who's one of my all-time favorite actors as well. And, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you said that this is, uh, your mother's favorite film of all time, correct? Well, it's, it's up there. It's one of her top favorites, I'd say. I can see why, because uh, in short, while it wasn't my favorite film on Earth, and I feel like there are things that I could pick apart, but I won't really do that, I really felt the film. And there Mm. were parts that really got to, like, my heart. And that's that's why I feel like this is considered, like, 
a highly coveted romantic drama for its time because it's not so much what's going on and it being fine-tuned or, you know, masterful cinema, which is flawless. No, it's the fact that it really drills into your heart. And uh, what we have here basically are what I consider to be like two very different people. Again, played by Redford and played by... Um, by Barbara Streisand, uh, particularly doing a, during a very, uh, in fact, the whole film is, but like they meet during a very politically heightened time pre World War II, um, and basically, despite their odds, they kind of spark this this chemistry between one another. But the film is always aware that they are from different walks of life and can at any point combust, and they do. They do quite a bit in this film where they don't see eye to eye or uh, they embarrass one another, and I feel like both performers, Streisand and Redford, are exceptionally good at being charismatic but also kind of confrontational or uh, showcasing the side of, you know, where their patience is tested or... They love somebody, but they're conflicted by what their beliefs are. And that's the thing. Like, these are two very political people, particularly um, Streisand's character is extremely outspoken. And basically how this relationship through the years kind of, and this is where the, the heart of it comes from. It wants to succeed, but it knows it kind of can't. And I think that's, it's, it's pretty hard to watch, not in like any bad way or challenging way, but like if you've ever been in love, this these types of films are the ones that are like, be careful because anything can happen and it can all end. And it kind of breaks my heart every time I see that because it's like, everything's good on my end, right? But you just never know because things happen, circumstances happen. Life doesn't wait for you. You know, it's tough. Yeah, my mom said that at the time it came out, so this was the early 70s and she was maybe 20 years old-ish, um, she, uh, she said it became a metaphor for breakups in a way. Like, uh, if, so, if two people got along and there was nothing really wrong with either of them, but they still split up, it was sort of, oh, that was the way we were kind of relationship. Ah, uh, okay, I see. So are, what you're saying is it, it kind of like tapped into a sort of situation that other films maybe didn't at the time where it's like, Hey, yeah. this one's actually addressing something that just wasn't meant to be as opposed to like a fight or something. Right. A lot of love stories end in like huge drama and things like that. Or, or somebody uh, does something objectively terrible, but um, th like this one, I mean, neither of them are perfect, but um, none of them are particularly bad either. There's no real, I think, side to it. Yeah, you don't really ever, or in my experience, you don't ever really side with either of them. Like, oh my god, I think Robert Redford's being a real jerk. I'm going to go with Babs on this one. No, like, you're kind of just indifferent and kind of like a lot of the onlookers at, like, you know, events that they're at when they fight or everything. Um, you're kind of just watching in disbelief. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to unfurl. But either way, I feel sorry for them both. That's yeah, the way that exactly. I felt. Did you get around to it, James? I unfortunately did not. Uh, I would say save it for a night when you're feeling weepy. Yeah, like, again, I wouldn't say this is, like, one of my favorite films of all time, but if I had, like, a grand general list 
of romantic films that were at least emotionally effective. Yeah, I certainly felt this film a lot more than I did out of Africa, for instance, which is what um, Sidney Pollack actually won Best Picture for. Um, I I think out of Africa, they're kind of like the antithesis of one another. I feel like this was not as well made, but it just had a better story and more interesting characters that I really kind of connected with. Whereas out of Africa is extremely well made in terms of aesthetic and its sets and everything, but I was bored beyond tears watching it. So maybe the two together is a masterpiece. Remember the way we were has its flaws, but it's still better than love story. (sighs) It reminded me a little bit of that because that's another flawed film that I I can like feel. But if I have to pick between the two, I, I might have to go with this one, honestly, because I feel like, I feel like the flaws outweigh the, prose a little bit more in love story myself love means never having to say you're sorry see i can't tell if i like that line or not because <laughs> it's silly but i think it's and i dare i say ryan o'neill did something really well um his delivery of it in the iconic scene really like makes it worth something but i mean if you really look at it it's kind of a stupid line let's be honest yeah, well, those two got compared a lot because they came out pretty close together and they had a very similar trajectory. I'm not saying that I hate either of them or that one of them is grossly superior, but um, team the way we were, I guess, if if we're picking between the two. Yep. Uh, what about you, James? Uh, what did I recommend to you? And I'm, I'm not just saying that to transition uh with all things considered i honestly forgot what i even recommended to you oh really (laughs) i don't even remember (laughs) oh actually no i do remember i do remember now actually now that i remember i'm really stupidly excited because it's such a different (laughs) pick all right what do you what do you think what did you get Ah, yes, you gave me the 1968 revisionist spaghetti western classic the great silence by corbucci yes oh my god i can't i it's so. I think it's because it's not one that I was like. I wonder what James thinks, and I was thinking about it for so long. I think the last episode, I was like, "Eh, why don't I give him this?" Just like a spur of the moment, <laughs> just because it could be so out there and so interesting. What did you think? I thought it was great. It's definitely. I think the thing when we talk about like the just the overall history of westerns. I mean. It, it, we've discussed it numerous times, especially especially with Rachel, because I know uh, your dad, that, the Western is like one of his favorite genres, right? Yeah, I'd say his very favorite, probably. Yeah, it, it, but he, you know, you know, he's old enough to kind of grow up in the time of the classic Western, which mm-hmm. it, it, in all in all senses kind of, you know, very dated and at times really corny. But at the same time, it was it kind of had that thing where it was like, you know, it was a time where there was kind of almost had to be a happy end. And like the outlaws weren't really that much of an outlaw considering Mm -hmm. the time period like i mean they're about as they're about as bad as like the county sheriffs in whatever situations they were in but once you get into like the you know the the revisionists you know the spaghetti western and like the neo-western they decided to throw out all the you know it's almost like they threw out the the playbook of what the classic western was you know because a lot of the outlaws you see and these stories are like very much anti-heroes and they're a lot of times they're victims of circumstance. Like the, like the titular character who goes by silence. Um, 
he kind of lives his life because as a young boy, his parents were murdered by bounty killers and uh, they ended up um, to make sure he didn't speak. They ended up uh, cutting his throat to render him without the ability to speak. So he just kind of goes on his way, just, you know, always getting in trouble because obviously he's an outlaw, but he does, he has a tactic of like, you know, a defense as an offense. He provokes whoever is in his way to, try to strike first so that way he can get to them as a way to kind of claim self-defense and uh it kind of he kind of gets entangled with uh there's a bounty killer gang uh led by a man named loco who's played by klaus kinski who mm-hmm. plays a great villain and i don't know if that's because he he's kind of a terrible person he was kind of a terrible person in real life but or a really terrible person in real life but please don't yeah <laughs> yeah but it's just like oh his role is just great and um part of it part of the main plot is um you know, there's a group of outlaws, and one of the outlaws goes to be goes to spend some time with his wife, where Locus stumbles upon him and kills him for the bounty. But um, he doesn't take the body right away, so the wife buries it, and she ends up coming across the silence to, you know, she wants to pay him to get revenge, and that's really the bulk of it. And then just you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but this is this has one of those endings that I really appreciate that starts happening kind of the late '60s, early '70s, to where it's like. It's very realistic because it doesn't end on a good note, but it ends on, I would say, the most realistic note for the story. And I think that's where my appreciation comes from these type of Westerns that come later is because, you know, there's no true hero and the good guy doesn't or the supposed good guy doesn't always win. And it's interesting because it's a rare Western that takes place like you know, during the frigid season, it's not like a scene or two. It's like, it primarily takes place. Oh yeah. It's all during winter. Yeah. That was was so interesting. Also, the one thing I really enjoy with anything I've seen from the genre from this time period is the cinematography, the editing and the scores are always just absolute perfection. (laughs) Andy Amaricone, the, the, the greatest of all time. He's back at it with a very underrated score in this film, actually. Yeah. Overall, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's definitely, Oh, it's it's I understand why it's praised as much as it is. I remember being not frustrated, but a little dumbfounded with how it ended the first time I saw it. But that's because we're continuously expecting things to go our way or the filmmaker's way. But I love how subverted this is, this idea that sometimes we can't pre-plan stuff. Sometimes fate doesn't matter. Sometimes narrative structures don't always lead you to the same place and you know and i bring up the uh the landscape the snowy landscape and the the weather conditions again because it really is like arguably the coldest western of all time not just in terms of what you see on screen but also just tone and i think that's what i grew to like really adore where it's like wow this this really understands the ruthlessness of in the genre, of course, because let's be honest, this wasn't real life where people were just gunslinging every second. But um, this really understands what the genre truly is actually supposed to be all about. Like the um, the limitations of mortality and life and how quickly it could be taken away and how the world doesn't really respond afterwards and it doesn't really care, you know, the, the idea of the lone gunslinger, but here this really commits to that because there's no saving grace. There's no John Wayne or Clint Eastwood being saved by the powers of Hollywood. No, like 
anything can happen and nobody's gonna care and it it just moves on like it really is one of the coldest films i've ever seen uh apparently and i didn't find this out until i looked deeper into it uh, corbucci apparently shot two other endings for the movie he shot a happy ending and an ambiguous ending uh well knowing that i'm happy with the direction they went Oh yeah, like like looking back at it, it's like this was because like, you know obviously you know producers and studios are always nervous about doing endings like that, but the fact that he shot you know these other two, but that's the one that actually made sense. I was like, yep, that's the way to go. Yeah, this is straight up like if Sam Peckinpah did like a a spaghetti western or something like something just really ruthless and co- a complete disregard for all of the the tinsel and silver that Hollywood has sold us on. Like it, it really is like so contradictory when it comes to what we're led to believe of the Western genre. And I think it stands alone in that way. I wouldn't say it's the greatest Western, but possibly top five, even in the spaghetti Western genre, it's probably right behind for me, probably right behind to get the bad and the ugly and once upon a time in the West. I mean, what else is better than, than, you know, what what comes what comes after those two? It has to be that one, in my opinion. Well, yeah, well, I enjoyed my pick. Fantastic. Well, I'm happy to hear, and uh, I hope we all liked the other pick. So one person picks the collective pick each week. So I went with the Juniper Tree because I was in a Bjork mood because she just released a new album, and I think it's pretty awesome. If you're not into weird stuff, I would probably stay away it's one of her weirder albums but i i love it i love her avant-garde stuff or you know art pop stuff whatever you want to call it and i was you know for years especially because i'm just heavily interested in like your communities and stuff but even in like cinephile communities the juniper tree by nietzsche keen has been brought up a time and time and time again at least for the last five years or so and i'm not really sure where this sudden love for it came from again but um lo and behold this 1990 film which was uh shown at sundance but then released to the masses in 93 this is well before bjork was a household standalone name she was still like you know associated with the sugar cubes exactly Uh, and like uh associated with with the uh the sugar cubes and all of that over in iceland um yeah this brief 80 minute film now has this sudden resurgence so what do we all think does it deserve this second wind this legacy that it has suddenly developed i think it's certainly worth a look i think it's well made the atmosphere it projects is really strong bjork's great in it she works great in everything though i know she doesn't like acting and she kind of just does it occasionally um or did it occasionally anyway but um she's such a natural with acting honestly yeah and her she gives off this super young vibe and even though she's 21 when or about that when the film was made she really seems way way younger in the film and i can't believe how seamlessly she did that yeah absolutely so the juniper tree is based on the um fable of the same name yep this is like a fantasy medieval film uh very short but lots of surreal fantasy imagery going on here and um I don't want to say too much because it's like one of those films where the less you know, the more you're like kind of thrown in for a loop and like just kind of flabbergasted at like what you're seeing. The whole thing takes place in black and white. Um, The majority, like there's great acting all around, but like the majority of the film rests on Bjork's shoulders um, and she carries it very nicely. It's 
and another reason why I picked it was I, f- I felt like James is into indie films, limited locations, limited cast, seeing how much you could do with very little. What did you think of this? Oh, I thought I thought it's a really good example of doing a lot with a little. But the the funny thing was like after I watched it, the first thing that went through my mind was this film looks like the director binge watched a bunch of early Bergman films like I did when you assigned me Persona. Yep. This plays like a Bergman film. Oh, it had serious Bergman vibes. Like super hardcore. It, it, it does. Which for listeners who don't know, uh, Bergman's my all-time favorite filmmaker. So uh, pure pure accident. But hey, it's a happy marriage between uh, one of, like my favorite filmmaker and one of my favorite artists, even though he's got nothing to do with it. I got those vibes too, for sure. Especially like Winter Light. Oh, yeah. Well, also, I was kind of thinking, like, um, it almost kind of had, like, the part where, out of those kind of, like, uh, moments where Bjork is, like, having those kind of visions, it almost kind of reminded me of those um, ethereal sequences in Wild Strawberries. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I never I never actually thought of that. Um, I mean, Sweden and Iceland aren't the same, but there certainly is a lot of crossover appeal, so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, filmmaker Keen was heavily inspired by um, by Bergman, let's say. Yeah, it's kind of wild, though. It says this was shot in 86. It didn't come out... It, it, it showed at Sundance in 90, and then it like got a bigger an actual release in 93, and then now here we are almost 30 years later, and it's like kind of back out there. Also, it's interesting the whole cast is Icelandic, and yet it's in English. <laughs> actually that's a fair point i never yeah, actually thought I, I of that surprised by that i never actually thought uh as somebody who's more connected with iceland than i will ever be unfortunately why do you think that might have been for like the early 90s because let, let's say now with something like lamb which just came out there certainly isn't any shyness around you know making an authentically icelandic film starring a swede of course but uh why do you think that might have been in the early 90s Maybe because Nyechka Keen's American? Actually, that's a very fair point. <laughs> maybe maybe cut this part out, James. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I think I think it's cool. But um, I will say, like, even the little kid, I, I, I don't know how young English education starts in Iceland or did in the 80s, but he did a great job, too, acting in probably a second language. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is attributed to, um, to Keen's directing and how much is, like, just the child also being a natural because like has the child done anything else since um he doesn't have a wikipedia page that's all i can say maybe not well overall uh we like you we uh think it's okay we, yeah we like it's you. very much a dark fairy tale like i mean it's based on a Grimm's fairy tale for anybody who doesn't know about the film so if you're interested in that kind of thing then this could be a hit for you it, it can be tough though I, I will tell you there's some tough moments for me i think i'm happiest because again it felt like a bergman film which is a very fair point um I'm a big fan of, of Bjork, so I'm happy to see her acting and doing really well in something. And I, I kind of I kind of like everything, but I feel like once I've seen it once, I'm not entirely sure my, if there's any urgency to ever watch it again. But you never know. I feel like it's like a one-and-done type of film. Unless you show it to somebody else. That's true. And luckily it's short enough that you could do that without feeling like you're wasting your time ever. 
I would say it's quite good. It's a quite good, humble, um, magical, emotional sort of a film. And worth a shot. I don't think... Uh, it could be your next favorite film. I'm not sure. But I don't think there's anything wrong with trying it. I don't think there's anything that will be extremely off-putting or awful about, watch, about trying this film. So... That's that, and uh, we're going to get into four other films that we ourselves are going to try. But before we do that, where can our listeners find us? We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut, and we are not going to pay money for our blue check because we are not famous enough to have one. <laughs> oh, I mean, right. <laughs> we, we could, and people might think we're worth a damn, but, uh, you know, maybe it's worth it. Alrighty, so... What we like to do at the end of this episode, typically in episodes, we give each other random weekly recommendations, and we are also reminded of what films we have selected for our next cinematic, cinematic smorgasbord, but we don't have any yet, so instead of giving random recommendations, just for you listeners, we're going to give each other our recommendations for the next episode, so for the December episode of the Cinematic Smorgasbord, and I think I'm not only speaking for myself when I say this is probably our favorite part of the episode, finding out what we're going to have to watch next. So who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okie dokie. So um, I don't know how familiar you are with this filmmaker, but the good news is he works with fairly short films. He says so much in such little time. And at 83 minutes... I'm suggesting that you watch the final film by Robert Bresson. It's called L'Argent, or in English it's called Money, but um, it's known throughout the world and cinephilia as L'Argent. It's an 80s masterpiece. It's heavily symbolic, heavily based on the allegory of money and all of its negative connotations. It's not so much a story or a character study as much as it is just a ripple effect of symbolism. And I feel like it says so much without, you know, actually saying so much. It just, it does showing without, without telling. And I think it's a highly effective film. It's one of the best films of the eighties, in my opinion. So there you go. You've, have you ever watched anything by Brisson? Um, let me just check and see what he's done. Um, oh yeah. an on condamné shop. Yes. I've seen that one. Um, okay. And, um, yeah, I, I'm just seeing here that uh, L'Argent was actually based on a Tolstoy novella, so that's exciting. And that's another reason why I picked that one specifically, because, uh, I mean, Bresson has, I think he's like one of the most perfect or near-perfect filmographies ever. There's nothing of his that I've seen that I didn't like, but this one specifically, I was like, hey, Tolstoy, maybe Rachel will be into that. Yes. Fantastic. All right, James, what am I going to watch? What are you getting? Hmm. So I was trying to figure out, like, huh, what, what would be a fun film to give you? So I decided to go with the 2013 revenge film Blue Ruin by Jeremy Saulnier. Blue Ruin. I just have to double check if I've actually... You know what? It's by the same director who did Green Room. Yes. Here's the thing. For years, I was like, I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get around to it. I don't think I ever actually did. So I don't think I saw it. So perfect. <laughs> it's definitely what I, because I'd heard about, I, I think I saw Green Room and I was like, okay, what is, what is this guy done? Up? What else has he done? And then I watched Blue Ruin and it's definitely a very unique, unique take on the revenge film. 
Like it's also it's also famous for being a, an early film um, that uh, got funded by I think Kickstarter. Yes. Yeah, this film has been on my radar for years. I remember when this first came out. Like this is even before Green Room was even an idea. Um, I just kept putting it off. So thank you. I guess now I can't do that anymore. Uh, I'm excited. Thank you. Awesome. I, I I think it's a great film. I think you might like it as well. Awesome. Very All excited right. for that. What am I getting? All right. Well, the other day I asked you about Hal Ashby. Oh. Yeah. So uh, I picked this one basically because um, I listened to the soundtrack three times a week at minimum and was thinking, hmm, I wonder if James has ever seen this because I think it would appeal to him. And that is Harold and Maude. Oh, it's that's kind of awesome. a love story, kind of a reflection on life itself. I talked about it in one of our previous episodes, but it's the kind of film everybody needs to see. So you're gonna. It's a rare, twisted film that I feel like still resonates with everybody and isn't like exceptionally off-putting and challenging. And is weirdly wholesome in some ways. Right, it <laughs> is, and it's and it stars uh, what's her name from from Rosemary's Baby. Ruth Gordon. Ruth Gordon, an Academy also an Award winner, screenwriter. She was responsible partially for Adam's Rib and Pat and Mike. That's true. She's a massive legend. Yeah, that's a uh, James. You've got a great film on your hands. Awesome. Yeah, she uh, she messaged me asking if I'd seen anything else by Hal Ashby uh, aside from being there when she assigned it to me, and I said, besides that, no. Great. Well, I think you'll like this one, and definitely watch out for the soundtrack. Fantastic. Now, I believe, James, you're the one picking our fate for this evening as well. Uh, what is our collective pick? Yeah, so it's funny. I totally forgot that it was my turn until like 15 minutes before this episode. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure a lot of thought went into this. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, it's my turn because, uh, yeah, I've just been super busy. But also, I had, I had like the next six months of smorgasbord assignments that I was giving planned out and then i looked and i accidentally deleted it oh no so i didn't remember any of this i didn't remember what i was going to be assigning this time so i decided to go with uh, the 1960 film private property and if you're a longtime k-cut listener you know i brought this up during our episode about lost film as it was a uh, thought to be lost and rediscovered i'm excited to see this it's also uh it also was famous for uh being reviled by the kennedys because they went and saw it i think it was before I think he won. I forgot what he won during that time, but yeah, I remember. Uh, yeah, apparently they hated the film, and Jackie Kennedy herself stated that it was it was basically pornography. And I was like, "What?" Okay. Well, now I'm interested. If the Kennedys hate it, now I'm interested. Yeah, it upset rich people. <laughs> not not that I'm anti Kennedy or anything. It's not like that at all. Let me clarify. I just love stuff that's polarizing. I've got to find out why they were so upset. It could have been anybody. It doesn't have to be the Kennedys. But it's also my kind of film. It's a super <laughs> low budget. Takes place in primarily one spot. So great. Well, it sounds like a good one. Fantastic. Well, that is our selection for the next cinematic smorgasbord. So, what are we watching? We're watching Larjean. Blue Ruin, Harold and, Harold and Maude, and Private Property. And you at home can be watching it too. So uh, if you do, let us know your findings. If you watched any of the films from this episode, let us know your findings as well. Did you like Juniper Tree or any of the other three films? Give us a shout out. Let's talk film. That was the K-Cut. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. We are now going into the L-Cut. L-Cut.